Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network. The interview that you're about to hear was conducted by Jenny Atia, and it was first published on her wonderful show, ThoughtCast. I think you'll enjoy it, and I hope that you visit ThoughtCast today at www.thoughtcast.org. Welcome to ThoughtCast, also podcast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia. The Civil War, fought to restore the Union and free the slaves, can be seen in general, at least by the North, as a victory for the country, a bloody but necessary step toward a better future. But in the particular, it's a story steeped in disaster and defeat. The sense of loss, when looked at on an individual basis, is hard to rationalize and to accept. But it's in this contrast between the larger goals and the specific pain they inflict that our principles are tested. First-time author Carol Bundy has spent the last 10 years steeping herself in the war and in the life of Charles Russell Lowell, Jr., an elite young Union officer with abolitionist roots, a reformer who fought for an ideal and died for it at the age of 29. In short, a tragic, romantic hero. Bundy's book is called The Nature of Sacrifice, a biography of Charles Russell Lowell, Jr., 1835 to 1864. We spoke in her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Carol, why did you choose this particular phrase, the nature of sacrifice, for your title? Well, that's a great question. Um, the title came very, very early on in the process. It was actually a working title. I was fairly sure that, they, that my publishers would um, suggest something zippier. But it seemed to me to keep be a title that would keep me on task, essentially. One could look at the whole development of the narrative, of the biography, as a chart of the sacrifices that all led up to his sacrifice of his life at the end. This is the first biography of Charles Russell Lowell, Jr. since 1907. That book was written by Edward Waldo Emerson, the son of Ralph Waldo Emerson, that's a long gap. One could interpret that in two ways. Either, gee, he's not worth a biography, or, gee, he's been overlooked somehow. Well, obviously, I thought he'd been overlooked. And it was risky. I will say there was, I, you know, one could have easily thought that these guys, of whom he was one, had all been carved in marble and had had their day in the sun. Um, What was surprising to me was that I had missed their day in the sun completely. I did not know who this guy was. So he was a dead white man. Uh, But it seemed to me that, you know, what had been lost was this very living story, this incredibly romantic story with a tremendous amount of passion in it. And... That intrigued me 
to to say, could I go back and bring this guy back to life? And instead of him just uh, being um, lost to us, could, could he be refound? And could he be understood in a new way? Charlie, as you call him, and others did, mm-hmm. is your great, great, great uncle. You were motivated to write this book initially because you found his spurs, his rusted sword, and his saddlebags after your grandmother's death. You have a very strong connection to this guy. What is the impact of that on you? Well, nobody had talked about him in the family. Um, the whole family self-definition, shall we say, the family lore, the family stories, our sense of who we were did not include um, romantic radicals who went and got themselves killed fighting for glorious causes. So I suppose for me it was the curiosity of how do I fit this guy into the picture? And what am I going to learn as I find out about him, you know? And, and what I did learn was that there was a whole chunk of family history that had been forgotten. And it fits perfectly because, well, I think it would be not an overstatement to say that growing up in the 1960s, it was very, from a Boston family, it was very easy to think of yourself as, you know, incredibly boring, part of the establishment, totally, everybody, you know, nothing new to be said about you. And the horror of belonging to the establishment was hard to quite reproduce. So there was a great tendency among all of us to sort of turn our back on our family and go off and try and do something original, something that was that would animate our existence. And here was a guy who did that and who really embraced so many of the ideals that uh, we in the 60s, you know, believed in. And most of these guys were killed. And over there, you know, the, the gap that got left, you know, filled in with, you know, guys that made fortunes in railroads and ran Calumet and Hakla mines and blah, blah, blah. And it's Boston ran into an eclipse, essentially, of becoming ossified and boring. But it, a lot of it was due to losing, really, the most exciting young men of, of one generation. Perhaps that was some of the survivor guilt that Lowell himself felt before he met his end. One of the remarkable things that I've learned in your book is how many times he could have died. How many horses were shot from under him during during the war? Well, 13 in one campaign, yeah, so a lot. But a that, lot. Was, uh, that wasn't all. Yes, <laughs> There were more right. than that. That was right. That's right. There were more than that. You know, I think a lot of horses got shot, to be fair. They're a bigger target. So it was a lot easier to hit a horse than to hit a man. And what... Ho- Lowell was very good at doing was remounting in battle <laughs> so that he kept going. I think they shot a lot of horses because they thought that would knock a lot of guys out. And you didn't have to kill someone. You didn't have to hit someone well enough to kill them. If you shot their horse, you put them out of the game. Well, Charlie Lowell almost made it, but his death was a death that actually made a difference. 
as your book says. October 19, 1864, the Battle of Cedar Creek in Shenandoah Valley, two weeks before the election, in which, as it turns out, Lincoln was re-elected. What was heroic about Lowell that day? Well, he said about a year before, he had written to his wife, Effie, and he'd said, the great secret in doing is in seeing what needs to be done. You know, one of those terribly matter-of-fact statements which contains a lot. And I think that Battle of Cedar Creek was an excellent example of that. Lowell realized that orders were not getting through. He realized that somebody had to come in and keep the Confederates from continuing to overrun the Union camps. And without orders, he led his brigade and another brigade across the battlefield and deflected fire onto him and then took a position forcing the Confederates to remain in the town of Middletown. And that was what permitted the Union officers to begin to rally their men and to reform their units and do all the work of putting the panicked army back together again to create a counterattack. In your book, I really got a feel of the pageantry. He was wearing, obviously, an officer's uniform. It was gaudier than the others, easier for the sharpshooters to, to pick out. And he was parading back and forth in front of the Confederates, almost taunting them in a way so that he would be the center of their attention. And in, in a way, this brave, risk-taking personality was evident throughout his whole time in the army. But this was the moment when he lost out. How then did he die? Well, the first wound came in one of these moments when he and his men were out at the front holding the Confederates in the town. Many of his men were behind stone walls or in trees, providing cover for the other men who were charging the town. And as he was riding back from one of these charges, a spent mini ball, what that means is a ball that had already hit something else, most likely a stone wall, ricocheted off the wall and hit him high up in the chest and fractured some part of his chest. And he was knocked from the horse. Some accounts have him spitting up blood. He couldn't talk for a time. And it was clear that he was badly wounded. Nonetheless, he refused to leave the field. And at this point, his superior generals came and saw him, and he wouldn't leave the field. And I think at this point, they, everybody recognized that he was dying. So they gave him the, uh, they asked him to lead the final charge. And then they strapped him back into his saddle. And when the final charge came, he took off leading the cavalry uh, in this charge on the town and he was shot by sharpshooters and finally hit through the shoulder. The bullet went right through the shoulders and severed his spinal column quite high up so that he just fell straight off the horse. And 
that he didn't die, but he was paralyzed. He was a sitting duck, essentially, at that point. But what it did do was it got the charge going, it got his men going, and it allowed him, in a sense, his moment of glory. And I'm sure that, I don't have the evidence for this at all, but I'm quite sure that the last thing he wanted was to sit around in a hospital coughing his guts up. So he had said earlier, the year before, when Robert Gould Shaw, his brother-in-law, was killed, he said something like, that is the time to die when you're with the people you love, meaning his men, you know. He clearly felt that death in battle, death at the head, death leaving your men, was the way that he wanted to die. You're listening to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia. With me is Carol Bundy, author of the new biography of Charles Russell Lowell Jr. called The Nature of Sacrifice. Stay with us. Carol, let's back up and provide a little bit of a context for this guy. Lowell was born, as we know, in 1835 to a Boston Brahmin family, one of incredible prominence, really, uh, His grandfather, Reverend Charles Lowell, was one of the few ministers who spoke out against slavery. His uncle, James Russell Lowell, a famous poet. His much younger cousin, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who became the Supreme Court Justice. Charlie was born into a world that was incredibly privileged and prominent. What was life like then? Well, I think that the first five years were pretty much paradise. There was a ton of money, there was a ton of family, there was a ton of whatever you wanted, and he was the first grandchild. So, you know, a thousand doting teenage (laughs) aunts. When his father went bankrupt in 1840, things changed dramatically. As I say in the book, going bankrupt, if you're from a big Boston Brahmin family, is actually really hard to do. The guy goofed up in a major, major way. So the humiliation of that uh, the, was just terrible. Uh, and he took down with him his own father and siblings and, and Charlie's grandfather. It, it was a it was a really big failure. And although. Most of the family could survive in a kind of genteel impoverishment and hiding it to some degree. Uh, Mrs. Lowell, Charlie's mother, set up a school and ran a school and paid and supported the family by becoming a teacher. As a result, perhaps, Charlie turned into an angry young man, somebody who was really hard to get to know. Right. He also, at the same time, had this incredible charisma. Right. And he was brilliant. He graduated from the top of his class at Harvard. His commencement speech was an intellectual coming out party, in a way, for him. (laughs) Yeah, it was. What was the rebellious and brilliant nature of that speech? Well, it was called the reverence due from old age to youth. And, And this was an argument that had been made by people like Ben Johnson and so on. So... He was following in a a long tradition, but his point was simply that the excitement of youth, what what young men had to offer the world, wasn't just that they were a fresh supply of labor. 
they were going to see things differently. They were going to understand things differently. That change could come from the young. That you you turn over the world to new people. This was a very romantic idea. It follows directly from, you know, Wordsworth's "Trailing Clouds of Glory." Did he come? This idea that the children are born with a kind of divine vision. And it's only by being ground down by experience in the world that they lose that magical uh, perfection. And Lowell sort of adapted that idea into this thing of young men are sort of like gods almost. Playing off of what I think, you know, maybe we all feel that there's something really glorious about the very young and their sense that they can conquer the world and no problem is a problem. And um, He thought his father's generation had failed. It was up to his generation to do something about it. Right. In the speech, Lowell said, quote, The old men, the men of the last generation, cannot teach us of the present what should be, for we know as well as they, or better. They should not tell us what can be. For the world always advances by impossibilities achieved. End quote. What is Lowell trying to say here? Well, he's referring to many things. Some of it is in the rise of the industrial world, that all of a sudden, you know, you can make a mill wheel or you can make a you can build a railroad and you just change configurations beyond what anybody could have imagined. But he's also talking morally here, and he's talking about slavery and the fact that what should be is that the the recognition that the black man was a man, that he was should not be property but should be seen as a human being, and the incredible frustration that young people felt with all the various attempts, whether through the Congress or through the courts to change this understanding and the fact that it met with failure over and over again. Uh, The slave remained property. And this was what Lowell believed morally untrue, and yet how how to make that change. One of the influences on Charlie was Emerson and his philosophy of transcendentalism. How did this influence his thinking? Well, um, Emerson animated things in a way that brought them to life and made them more vivid. And that sense of I will directly experience the world uh, rather than simply feed off of received wisdom was a big part of his appeal. So Lowell is being impregnated with this concept of Again, reinforcing this concept of the worth of the individual, perhaps, the godliness of man, in a way. Feeding him this notion that there's something he really needs to do with his life. Yes. Uh, So here we have Charlie Lowell, positioned to be an actor in the world. And he goes to war. What starts to change? How does the young idealist evolve into a fighting man? It's a very gradual thing, and he is given command of a small brigade tasked with opposing John Singleton Mosby, who is 
a guerrilla fighter. He's the one really legitimate guerrilla fighter of the Confederate Army and the one that endures. Uh, and a brilliant man and highly successful. And he operates in Western Virginia. And Lowell is trying to stop this guy. And he, the, the number of problems that he runs into just horrendous and, and not at all unlike, you know, going to Baghdad today. Uh, and there is no guidebook. Well, there is a guidebook. There is something called Lieber's Code, which attempts to set the limits. But the limits are very vague. And they're thing, the limits are things like, don't poison a well, which he had no intention of doing anyway. It doesn't get into what is really tough and difficult, which is all these questions. How do you live in occupied, as an occupying force in a population that is 85% opposed to you? What do you do about your men who want to forage and then that ends up making civilians angry? What do you do about your men who after, you know, they've been ambushed just want to go out and cut a bunch of throats? Uh, how do you hold your men in check? Um, so how did Lowell grow into this, respond to this? General Grant in the Shenandoah campaign initiated this scorched earth policy, and it was the cavalry that had to enact it. Right. And that, that there was no real option but to do that. Now, they did do things like, for instance, uh, if they had to burn a house, they would help the people move all their furniture out. So there was an attempt to establish some humane link. And this was, I think, what Lowell felt throughout, was that in some way you had to keep your humanity alive. But it clearly troubled him enormously. And increasingly... I think it fed his sense that he would have to commit his life to Reconstruction, uh, that there was just stuff being done, that the country was being ruined on a scale that... And, and he recognized that, and I think to some degree even believed that it needed doing. I think he, at this point he felt that so many people had died and that there was no going back. Abolition would have to, emancipation would have to win. They had to win, and he wanted to do whatever it took to win. But he sure didn't like what it was that it took to win. So I think there was that, in terms of what changed for him, was the sense on this anger that built that said, we must win this war. He wasn't going to turn back on that. And then the price to pay for doing that was very high. What was the price for him as a person, do you think? Well, beyond his life. Um, you know, I think that he was on very dangerous ground. He was on this ground that said, you know, we're going to make this up later. We're going to come, you know, I want, when this is all over, I want to be able to look a southern stranger in the eye. He, what he did was he just transferred a lot of his ideals to the idea of this useful citizen. And, um, you know, his mind had already moved on to fixing those problems, which may have been, you know, his way of 
denial isn't quite the right word. I'm not quite coping. Coping. Coping with what what he had to do. You're listening to Thoughtcast. I'm Jenny Atia. With me is Carol Bundy, author of the new biography of Charles Russell Lowell Jr. called The Nature of Sacrifice. Stay with us. Carol, from your book, I get the impression that Lowell was a very private man. He didn't let people get to know him easily. He didn't allow a reporter to follow him around in camp. Perhaps another reason why history has overlooked him. Mm, absolutely. I'm just wondering, uh, when you're describing Lowell as a reticent man who holds back, who doesn't want to flaunt, you're describing to me the quintessential Yankee, the old-fashioned northeastern liberal that used to run the country to a certain extent and now has become sort of the, the brunt of jokes. To what degree uh, do you think of Lowell as sort of the, the northeastern liberal a la John Kerry, but without the baggage? Um, I'm not sure that a southern gentleman would have been that much more forthcoming. But perhaps flashier. Flashier. <laughs> Definitely flashier. But, but, you know, I take your point that these guys were all, this was the cream of the Yankee crop. And what changed is, you know, another book. It's another subject. Things happened in New England after the war that I think dramatically changed the way that New England developed and the role that it had to play in the country. But, you know, Massachusetts was still a state to be reckoned with at this point. It rapidly became less and less of a state of any significance whatsoever. And that inevitably takes its toll, you know. So I think it's that shrinking of Massachusetts within the larger picture of the United States that plays a big role in making, you know, I think after the last election, we all ended up feeling that Cambridge was a little bit like Amsterdam, you know. It was neither here nor there and spoke only for itself. That wasn't always true. In a way, to me, I see Lowell in literary terms. He's a young character who dies before he has time to betray us, to betray himself, to betray the cause. And he remains in that context protected. Right. As a hero. Yep. And, you know, I think that in that sense, you know, I very deliberately ended the book with Effie because, of course, she's the one that makes good. She's the one who delivers the goods and at huge cost. You know, there's this other form of heroicness, which is to be able to give your entire life to a essentially thankless but much-needed task. And this is what Effie does with her life. And consciously saying she's doing the work of two, she's very clearly delivering on this vision. And in that sense, she keeps it pure because it isn't hers to modify over time, which undoubtedly Lowell would have done. Life would have intervened. Life would have intervened. She would have intervened. You've spent 10 years on this project. In a talk you gave earlier at the Harvard Bookstore, you said that people refer to Lowell as an improving sort of person. I wonder if he's had that effect on you. 
Oh, I think I'm absolutely. Have you become more like him? I doubt it. <laughs> Although, yes, he's had an influence. There are times when I do think that, you know, I realize I get executive in a way that I perhaps wouldn't have always. Or you can't, it's almost like having lived with someone for 10 years. What will you do next? Will you go back to writing for film, which you've done? Will you continue with biography? Oh, I would very much like to continue with biography. I like biographical writing enormously. It's a great chance to live more than one life. And I think I'd really love to do that. <laughs> I, I think I, I think I've... It would take a lot to, for me to go do something other than biography right now. Well, Carol, thank you very much. Thank you, Jenny. You've been listening to author Carol Bundy talk about her new book, The Nature of Sacrifice, a biography of Charles Russell Lowell, Jr. This is ThoughtCast, also podcast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia. Thanks for joining us.